I want to talk about the one Bible verse that put me on the edge of, of straight up walking away from my faith and just giving up on Jesus. And then I want to take you to the Bible verse that brought me back. Because early on in my walk, I was navigating through some very interesting things. And I feel like a lot of people in this room has wrestled with or are currently wrestling with this right now. So I'm going to pray one more time and then we're going to jump in and just talk through how this is going to hopefully just radically affect you as well. So Jesus, we give you this time. Holy Spirit, I invite you into this place. Take control. Be the one in charge. Let these be your words. Let this be your truth in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, for those of you who know me, you know that I was the first in my family to start following Jesus when I was 17 years old. So I came to faith without a church background. I did not have a biblical worldview. Um, so it was all new to me. So when I started reading the Bible, I was struck with some very jarring and challenging truths. I mean, I really struggled reconciling the God of the Old Testament with the God of the New Testament and how they seemingly were two different people. I struggled with the, the, the reliability of Scripture. Um, how could this book just not be a copy of a copy of a copy that was translated in multiple languages and it's a thousands of year game of telephone? Like, I, I struggle with the fact that there are people who are better and nicer that are not Christians than people who are Christians. But the one thing that almost broke me, right, the, the one thing that took me years to wrap my head around. It caused me to literally change the course of my life, right? So my dad went to UF. He was an undergrad made, uh, graduate here. He was a med school graduate here. And I was planted firmly in his footsteps. Ever since I was a little kid, I wanted to be a doctor, just like my dad, a, a pediatrician to be exact. I was resolute on this path and so I started following Jesus. He just messed everything up. I mean, this, because this, this one truth kept nagging at me and I just couldn't get past it. I'm a logical, analytical thinker, so I had to figure it out and it ultimately changed not only my major at UF, but changed the trajectory of my life. So the verse that really sent me into an existential crisis was John 14, 6. Jesus very succinctly said, I am the way, I am the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one, not even one person, comes to the Father except through me. And this was tough for me. As a new Christian, I'm not gonna lie, you know, I, I'm not a journaler. I know that like in Christendom, like everybody has a journal. Um, so when I first got saved, I thought that's what you did. So I got a journal and, um, and I hated it, <laughs> but I made it through one. Um, but I found my first journal like two or three years ago. And I was looking through and reading through things that was from 22 years ago. And I went past this one page and I stopped and I read it. And this is what I, this was my prayer to God. I said, Jesus, I don't know if I can accept the fact that you're the only way to God. How could so many genuine people, good people, kind people be wrong? Would you really send them to hell? I don't know if I can swallow that. Those were the words of 18-year-old Matt Ulrich. See, the struggle for me that people might not be with God despite their beautiful lives just, just tore at my soul. 
because there are much better, much humbler, much kinder, more virtuous people than Christians that are all over the world that believe in other religions. And, and I still think that that's true. And there's more loving people, more disciplined people that are not committed to Jesus than a lot who are committed to Jesus. So how could this be the only way? So the exclusivity of Jesus, for better or for worse, has changed everything for me. And this is what we're gonna be focusing on today. It was such an important topic for me that I changed my major from pre-med to world religions at UF. My doctor dad was super excited about that one, by the way, right? Because <laughs> I just had, I had, to, I had to figure this out. Is God just cruel? Is he an elitist? I mean, is he a maniacal creator? Or is there something about the exclusivity of Jesus? I, I just, I had, I had to know. So I went on a religious and spiritual journey throughout my college career, because when you boil it down, all the religions are trying to answer the big questions. Like, why are we here? What's right? What's wrong? Is there something after this life? Is there, is there purpose for this existence? How do I find purpose in my life here? So in one sense, all the religions are trying to say the same thing and get to the same conclusions to answer these big questions and give you a set of parameters for hope, for purpose in a future. But the question is, which one's right? And so I went all in. I specifically chose UF as a secular university. I didn't transfer or go to a Christian college. I went to UF because I knew that my, my new Christian beliefs were not gonna get babied by Christian professors. If you go to the UF religion department at least 20 years ago, I had many professors that were overtly anti-Christian. But that's what I wanted. I wanted everyone to give me their case. Pitch me your religion. I was open. If Buddha was the way, I would have become a Buddhist. If Hinduism was the way, I would have become a Hindu. I dove right in. I read the Quran. I went to mosques. I studied Islam. I read um, the, the Vedas and the Bhagavad Gita. I studied Hinduism. I studied the life of Siddhartha and the Buddhist suttas, and I went to Buddhist meditation centers. I studied the Torah and the Ketavim and the Nephi'im, like the, the Jewish scriptures. I hit all the big five, studied all the world religions, I, I, and I, I dialogued with very passionate followers from each of these religions. I asked them questions, and I poked and prodded and figured out what I figured out. And here's what I found. And I'm gonna kind of start, this whole message is gonna kind of be my, my findings culminating with what I believe now. And my first observation, after reading all of these, these, these religious scriptures, it lines up quite nicely with Tim Keller. I am indebted to him for a lot of thoughts today. But he said that religion has a general tendency to strongly divide and cause people, or strongly divide people and cause strife. And as you read religious histories, this becomes glaringly obvious for all religions. Why? Because religion creates a slippery slope in our minds that tends to manifest in bigotry, oppression, and violence. I mean, think about it. If you tell people that they have the truth and they were saved by performing that truth, this will lead those followers inevitably to have a superiority complex, right? That you're better than other people. And that mentality, mentality starts to settle in your heart. And once it roots itself there, you start to pull away from the people who don't look like you, who don't believe like you, who don't think like you. And you start to create general stereotypes and characterizations of those other people. And ultimately what happens is you create a system in which you passively or actively participate in the marginalization or oppression of people who don't share your belief. You can easily start to dehumanize people and think that they deserve it, whatever it is that you conjure up. So our modern culture, they would actually agree with this. Our modern culture agrees with this assumption. So in order to mitigate this religious peril, Western society has deemed religion as dangerous or suspect at best. And so our society has come up with the conclusion that everyone 
Everyone needs to believe two things in order to assuage this religious danger. The first is that we just need to believe that all religions are equally valid paths to God. Stop being bigots, just be tolerant, realize your way is not better than my way and that's not better than anybody else's way. The second thing that is, keep it to yourself, right? I'm good, you're good, let's not mess that up, right? So for example, when we wanna be civil at dinner, what are the two things you don't bring up? We don't talk about politics, religion, Bruno, somebody said Bruno. Um, And so here we are in our modern day world where the predominant belief is all paths are equal. It just sounds right, doesn't it? I mean, I heard this all the time at the UF campus, but when I would ask somebody to explain that assertion, okay, so, so what does that mean? What does that look like? They'd usually say something like, well, no one has the right to say that they have the full picture of the truth. Everyone only sees part of the whole. It would be the height of arrogance to say that you see the whole picture, Right? daring me to disagree so they could put me in my little bigot box, right? And usually it was followed by one of two explanations. The first modern day religious parable that you've probably heard is the parable of the blind men and the elephants, right? So you have three blind men, they stumble upon an elephant and they're all grasping different parts. And the first, the first blind man grasps the trunk, he says, ooh, an elephant is long and flexible. And then the second man, he grabs the elephant's leg and he says, oh, no, 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 an elephant is thick and strong. And then the ridiculously tall blind man apparently touches the top of the elephant and says, oh, no, no, he's huge and flat. And the, the, the moral of this religious tale is that all the wise men are right and all the wise men are wrong because none of them could see the whole picture of the elephant just like no one can see the whole picture of the truth of God. So no one religion can say that they have the entirety of the truth in the same way you shouldn't say that you know the full truth. We're all grasping for God, but we're doing it in different ways. And you know, that sounds very wise at first, but I've got some major beef with that description because the only way that you can know that the blind men couldn't see the entire truth of the elephant is if the person telling the story actually saw the whole elephant and the blind men and all of this taking place. And that means that the only way that they could possibly know that every religion only sees part of the truth is if they assume exclusively that they see the entirety of the truth. So the assum- they assume that the- we, ass- we have to assume that the person telling the story knows the whole truth, which is the very thing they say that nobody has, right? So, so even though this sounds super humble and deferring, nobody can really know. It's actually the height of arrogance and it's intellectually imperialistic to say that all religions are equal because if you're saying no one sees the truth except me, then we can't really make this claim that no religion is superior than others. Because when you say no religion has a, uh, uh, no one has a superior take on spirituality, that in itself is a take on spirituality. And when you say no one should try to convert someone else to their beliefs, you're trying to convert me to your beliefs, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's a paradox. It's a catch-22 where, where they're saying one thing, but they're not really kind of lining up with the other. Which leads me to my next conclusion to my religious journey is I found out that everyone not just Christians, not everyone has an exclusive set of beliefs. Everybody. Even atheism comes with answers to life's big questions that are inherently faith statements. Even though the atheist community, they're not gonna say it like that. But some atheists would say, we're just irrelevant cult or creatures within no inherent meaning. And that in itself is a faith statement. 
It's inherently what you believe. So at the heart of secularism, at the heart of atheism, at the heart of every world religion, there's an uncompromising commitment to a particular way of understanding the purpose of life and who God is, or in some cases, who God isn't. So this brings us to the question, how do you choose? Right? How do you know which exclusive set of beliefs is the right one? I mean, that's the question, right? So while I don't have time to break down every single world religion, I do want to give you a little bit of my insight and my story of when I was searching as a world religion major at UF 20 years ago of what I saw and why Jesus stuck out to me. What two things really stuck out to me from Jesus is it's very simple. It's, it's the who and the how of Jesus. We're going to talk about the who and the how of Jesus. First, it's the who. So Jesus is radically unique as a major world religion leader because he's the only leader of a major world religion who claimed to be God. Not know God, not get revelation from God, but to be God. Jesus claims to be God in the flesh, not just a man. Okay, so John 1, 1 through 3, and then verse 14 says this. In the beginning of the word, the word was God. The word was with God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing, has been, nothing was made that has been made. Verse 14 says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. Now, this is fascinating because all the other religions see the purpose of salvation is to liberate you from the flesh. The problem is the physical world that we're in. Eastern religions such as Buddhism is gonna tell you you need to escape the suffering of this world. Hinduism tells you you need to break your karmic cycles and be freed from this world. Western religions say, man, y'all just need to get to heaven and get the heck out of here, right? So all other religions are talking about the escape from this world and from the flesh. But here's Jesus, who John says, comes into the world wrapped in flesh to redeem not only the people of this world, but to redeem the world in itself. So this God-man literally has a human body, but at the same time is the transcendent God in whom all things were created. He was both in physical form, but was the uncreated God. He was God and man. We call it the hypostatic union. He was born of a virgin. The supernatural birth of Jesus as an uncreated being is unmatched in human history. He was God. He is God. He is the God to come. He did not, nor will he ever taste death. He actually defeated death through his resurrection. Now, I don't mean offense, but the reality is Buddha's bones decayed on this earth. Muhammad died a physical death as a man. Moses is buried in the ground. Jesus, however, is alive. Jesus is resurrected. And some people doubt the resurrection. I get that. I was there. I had a hard time wrapping my mind around this resurrection. I took my, my first class, ENC 1102 in University of Florida. I asked the teacher, we had to do like a 15-page paper to do, write on anything. Can I write about the historical validity of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ? She was like, well, uh. I was like, what if I use just all non-religious sources? Won't use the Bible. She was like, okay, you can do that. I mean, I studied it, man. I went through it and there's a very compelling case. Not a, Take the gospels out of it. People who weren't Christians talk about it. So here's the deal. With the resurrection, the evidence is quite compelling, but if you actually don't believe it, you have to at least admit it was the greatest hoax of human history because it changed the course of the world after the fact. 
You can't, I'm not, that's historical, empirical evidence for you. See, every other religion, found, the founder claims to be human. Jesus claims to be God. He doesn't claim to know the truth. He's claiming to be the truth. This is the powerful truth dynamic of John 14, 6. Others have claimed to have the truth. Only Jesus has the audacity to say, I am the truth. And this flies in the face of our current culture that says, you know what? Find your truth and be faithful to that. Find your truth and be faithful to that. And here's the deal. I would 100% be on board with that. That sounds great. I'm like, yeah, that sounds really good. Except for the fact that there was a man named Jesus who claimed to be the truth. That makes sense only if no one claimed to be the embodiment of truth and then backed it up. So what do you do when Jesus says he is truth incarnate? Because if this is the reality, then all other truths, whether it's your truth or your truth or your truth or my truth, all those other truths have to line up with the truth the man claiming to be truth. Jesus becomes the plumb line of what is true, the ultimate physical revelation of God and the true reality of all things. Now, this is really fascinating. As I was studying other religions, you know what else was known about or what else was called the way, the truth, and the life in Judaism? The Torah, the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, they they called that the way, the truth, and the life. Right, so Jesus is making, he's deepening his claims within the Jewish religion saying he is the embodiment of what Jewish people thought was the highest form of truth and revelation of God. So if he claims this, which he did, we can't just say he's a good teacher because good teachers don't lie to you, right? So C.S. Lewis, everybody knows C.S. Lewis. He's a great Oxford teacher, longtime atheist before he became a Christian. He wrote this. He said, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or he is a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with this patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. We have to accept Jesus for who he said he was or we have to flatly deny him as a crazy person. There's no in-between here. It's one or the other. So the first acceptance for me, 18, 19-year-old Matt, was that Jesus is who he says he is. That was the first revelation, the who. Remember I said the who and the how. And the how is built on the who. Right, So my first belief as a young religion major was that Jesus is God, who he said he was, the who. But the how is the way of salvation because Jesus didn't say, I am the truth. He said, I am the way and the truth and the life. And the way of Jesus, the path that God lays out for us is another radical differentiator from Christianity and all other religions. See, all other religions require you to work or earn your salvation. Sweat it out, get it done, pull yourself up by your religious bootstraps, love God better, love people better. It's like that the, the, the uh, gym coach that keeps the whistle on his mouth and he's walking around so he can get you. No, he, you know, just in case, just in case you see something wrong. 
Because that's kind of what happens if, if we are just looking at how we earn our salvation, then forget a loving God. This is gonna be more like a disappointing father that's solely looking to see, are you good enough? Are you good enough? Did you do enough for me? And we hope in all these religions, the hope is that you're going to do enough and God's gonna acknowledge what you're doing and let you into heaven. This is the antithesis of the gospel of Jesus, however. The how of Jesus couldn't be more radically different. So 1 John 4, 10 says this, this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Don't miss the radical nature of this. What is love? If you're, if you're 40 or older, you had the words, baby, don't hurt me. Just go through your head. I know you did. Just gonna acknowledge that. But for real, what is love? Not that we loved God, but the Bible says, remember from last week, Pastor Mike said, if we believe the truth, Jesus is the truth, and the Bible is his truth, we need to believe what the Bible says. It defines love as something not birthed from your religious acts. It does not begin with what you do for God. It begins with the love that he has for you, and you did nothing to earn it. This is not whistleblowing Jesus, right? This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he first loved us. And how did he show this to us? First John says he sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. God comes in the flesh and sacrificially pours himself out and suffers for the people who do not love him, who are not good, who are not loving one another and who are inherently selfish. This is the opposite of what all other major world religions say. They say you need to work for your salvation. It's on you. You need to be good enough. Hinduism says you need to be good enough to break your karmic cycles. Islam says your good needs to outweigh your bad. And then it really comes down to inshallah, which means if God wills it, you can go to paradise. In Judaism, you have to be good enough to live up to the law. In Buddhism, you need to be good enough and enlightened enough to escape suffering through the noble eightfold path. In all these circumstances, it's on you to work your way towards salvation. But not so for Jesus. He could care less of what you bring to the table when it comes to earning your salvation because your works are not a part of earning your salvation. And this stuck out like a sore thumb to me. I'm studying all these religions and I'm like, wow, one of these is not like the other. Jesus was not a teacher who came proclaiming the rules and standards we need to follow to be saved. He came as a savior who lives the life we should have lived and died the death we should have died in our place and we did nothing to deserve it. No other religion says this, not one. So not good, not religious, and not dutifully performing people can be saved. But only if Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And this is what we call grace, undeserved merit, an unwarranted gift. The problem is grace is such a foreign concept to us because we just never see it in our regular lives. Is this not true? To just get something and expect nothing in return. So I just turned 40 this year. I know I look 25, hey <laughs> uh, But my wife and I, we went to Hawaii, all right? 
So we got a Delta credit card, started saving miles for the trip to Hawaii. And this is just for all you bargain shoppers and people who can celebrate with me. We got two round trip tickets to Hawaii from Gainesville to Hawaii for 22 bucks. I was like, hey you know, um, Super excited about that. What I wasn't super excited about is three weeks before our trip, my whole family got the flu. And then on top of that, we all got COVID, right? And it's kind of one of those things, you know, you get through it, the COVID, one or two, two to three days for at least us, it was like, you're really, you know, you're, you're kind of laid up and then you have like seven days of quarantine, you're just kind of sitting around. So had a lot of free time. Um, and, you know, Will Jones came, he, he's a guest speaker, he came and spoke here a few months ago. And I remember him saying, when I was on vacation, I just shared the gospel with all these people. So the holy competitive, competitiveness in me was like, hmm, what could I do to help share the gospel on my vacation? And so I had time. So what I did was thinking through like even flights, okay? So what, what I love about Jesus is he walks into a room, he finds the marginalized or the unseen people and he sees them and he validates them and he loves them, right? So I was like, okay, so on, a, on an airplane, who are the unseen people on an airplane. And what I was thinking about, I was like, man, it's the flight attendants. The flight attendants just get all the bad rap. It's hard. So what I did was, again, I had time. I wrote 25 handwritten notes. We bought 25 $5 Starbucks gift cards. I had my kids write a little uh, um, uh, picture and said, thank you for taking care of my mom and dad, you know, things like that. Put it all together. And we started handing these out to these flight attendants. And this is what it said. It's nothing crazy, but I just said, it says, I know your days are sometimes full of angry and disgruntled people as of late but my family wanted to thank you dearly for not just your perseverance and what you do, but more importantly, for who you are. You are seen, you're appreciated, you are loved. Praying for you to have an awesome day. Matt and Tracy Olin, right? Nothing too crazy, but so I got, um, yeah. So I had my cards and when I got on the, the flight, I said, hey, this is for you. Thank you for all you do. Nothing, just, just want to love on you guys. This is from my family. And it was wild to watch how these different flight attendants reacted. Um, one guy was like, what seat are you in? Oh, we're taking care of you. You know, like really like big over the top. And I mean, he would just like, I mean, they would come and be like, sir, would you like a beverage? Would you like an alcoholic beverage on the house? I mean, like trying to give us stuff. I mean, there's one time the, the same guy came, he's like, oh, I'm sorry you had such a bad flight. I'm like, what are you talking about? I'm sorry you had, a, I'm gonna put 5,000 sky miles on your card because you had a bad flight. I mean, it was just wild. So some people were over, I know, I was like, thank you. I mean, I'll take it, but Another lady, like, you know those boxes, the boxes of snacks you can buy? It's like $5,000 for like three things. Um, she, just had, she just didn't even say anything. She just walks over, she goes, thank you. And just like dumps them in my lap. I'm like, what? And, and the problem is like, we're trying to make a point about, I'm like, hey, no, 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 we don't need anything. Like, please, uh, we didn't do this to get something from you. We're just saying thank you. They're like, oh no. And they just couldn't help themselves. They had to try to give us something back. And it's really interesting. Now, I know when somebody loves on you, you want to love on them. But I also think that a gift with no strings attached, like grace, is such a foreign concept that we have a hard time receiving it. We feel like we've got to do something back, right? So let me bring this back to the beginning where I said the first thing as a religion major I realized was that world religions and their histories, that all religion causes strife and division. I really do agree with that but grace doesn't. 
Because unless your religious impulses are trending towards peace-loving humility, that's not based on your own merit or the power to move the eternal or enlightened meter based on your own work, then that latent sense of superiority is going to come out of, in your thinking and will help you just feel justified that you're escaping the suffering or you're going to get out of this place and go to heaven because you're better than the people around you. Now, I know nobody says that, Nobody's gonna say they think like that way, but religious structures are set up to make this logically true. The only way to create a plumb line of good and bad is to juxtapose yourself or compare yourself with others to determine that you are better than average, thereby garnering God's favor to escape this world, break your cycles, or go to heaven. Doesn't matter how externally humble this looks, if you're not explicitly trying to hurt people with your religion, which happens in every religion, by the way, you will judge them and condemn them with your religious outlook to either stay here and continue suffer, suffering, get what you deserve karma-wise, or not get to heaven because you're just not good enough and I am. Now, I get it. If you're here, for those of you who are not Christians, I get the deep irony that you're feeling right now having the guy to, who ascribes to Christianity, which is like the judgment factory of the world, tell you it's not me, it's the other people, right? I, I get it, I get it. And I would also tag religious or cultural Christianity as one of the worst religions when it comes to judgmentalism. I'm not disagreeing with you. Christianity takes the cake because when someone doesn't understand grace and the fact that their salvation is not only birthed but maintained by Jesus, the ultimate condemnation and superiority creeps in. And here's the problem. Unfortunately, most Christians believe we are saved by grace, but we keep it through our works. A lot of us think that way. We're like, oh, thank you so much. You saved me, now I need to earn my way back into your good graces, or oh, I did something so wrong. How could I forsake the grace that you give me? Let me work my way back into your presence. And that's just not true. But this is what gives Christians, uh, the Christian judgmentalism that gives Jesus the black eye. Because when we see Jesus and his claims, that he is in fact truth, that he truly is God, that he is the way, and he revealed to us this grace-filled path of redemption to humanity in this world, and it's done by what he has done and not us, our heart posture cannot fully embrace this and at the same time have hate and condemnation in our hearts. It's impossible to have both. Why? because we are not saved by our performance. Merit-based religion will cultivate superiority and condemnation in our hearts and will or, or condemn our hearts to self-righteousness. But it's not just religion that does this. Even when people don't believe in religion, the secular world, they'll take a very post-enlightenment view, this pretentious stance that says, oh, it's you primitive Christians, all, all of your bigotry, you're the reason that we have all these problems in this world. And then you have moralistic people who say, well, actually, it's you moralist, you secularists with all of your debauchery and sin, you're the ones that are bringing this world into shambles. And so you have these two opposing factions that are fighting and constantly pointing their fingers from their superior and exclusive takes on life. But then there's the gospel. Not Christian religion, not Christian politics, gospel. Jesus, the God-man, who led a faith system that leads you to expect that people who don't believe like you are probably just gonna be better people than you. 
right? Because if you believe the gospel that you are saved, not by how good you are, not by how wise you are, not by how well you live up to a religious code, but simply and solely on the grace of God and what Jesus has done, done then this means that you will probably not think you're better than anyone else because you know that you need Jesus desperately to get you out of the life you're living and become who God has called you to be. And this is the reality of the gospel, the how. Redemption through grace. That led young Matt Orch to the verse that brought him off the cliff of denial. And this was the verse that brought me back and really said, oh Jesus, you really are who you said you are and you really do back this up as a caring and loving God. It's Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. It says this, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not by works, so nobody can boast about this. He literally took you and me out of the equation of our earning our salvation and put it on himself. In my mind, that's how a truly loving God would approach the people that he loves. He would not ask them to perform or try to earn their salvation. He would not compare them to others and kind of pit one person's goodness with another. He would not make it hard for us. And then we work really hard, but he still slams a salvific door in our face because it wasn't good enough. If God is love, which 1 John 4 says he is, then he would lovingly make a way that is accessible to even the worst sinner, the most wretched person, if they simply repented and acknowledged the love for them that is waiting to transform them into a new person. See, God seems like he would be more like the, the, the loving, uncon or the unconditional love of a mother, right? I mean, mom, there's something about mama bear love, like it doesn't matter what your kid does, you're always gonna love them. You're always gonna take them back. They could be the worst person in the world. You're like, but he has hope. I have hope. You know, moms are different, you know? Dads, man, you know, we're kind of like, well, dude, he deserves it. You know what I mean? So like, we, I think God is more like the mother who unconditionally loves his child than the father who demands perfect obedience and scars his children with his disappointment. There wouldn't be, if God really is loving, if God is who he says he is, there would be no comparison to others, no bar or standard that is set that we would try to attain, that would include and exclude others. It would simply be a love that is there, that is, that is for the taking, that requires nothing of us but to simply receive it. There's no other religion, a religious system that does this. Because in Jesus, the ultimate reality has become visible. Colossians 1.15 says he's the image of the invisible God. And if the ultimate reality has become visible, then what does that look like? I'll tell you what it looks like. It looks like a man on a cross loving the people who don't love him back. Forgiving the people who put him on that cross sacrificially serving those who oppose him. And when the early Christians took this truth and the reality, this, this ultimate reality deep into their inner core, it changed them. It transformed them. How could they coerce others? How could they be cruel? How could they be arrogant? How could they be just mental? They couldn't be. Because when you are saved by grace and you understand that reality and that fact, it changes who you are. When you take the ultimate reality of a man on a cross who doesn't love them back, you can't be any of those things either. 
Take moralistic religion or a tally of your righteousness of any kind at the center of your life and it will lead to superiority and arrogance above other people. Take secularism into the center of your life and you will feel superior to those simple-minded religious folks. But take the gospel to the center of your life and you will become a humble person who treats others better than themselves, is willing to serve others, and you know that a man who loves others who don't love him back is the ultimate expression and reality of what you base your life on. So when I was exploring religions, the other modern-day parable that I heard so often when people are trying to make a case for all the religions going to the same place was the Oprah mountain example, right? And it goes like this. Every religion is like a different person on their way up to the top of the mountain. There are different people starting in different places and they all work their way up the mountain and they find the understanding of who God is. Therefore, one's not better or more enlightened than the other. They're just different ways to get to the same destination. And I would partially agree with this. I mean, all religions are leading people on separate paths to their attempts to get to God Except one, though. See, the gospel is different than all the other beliefs and religious systems in, because the religious systems indeed make you work your way up to the mountaintop and you'll be judged accordingly. Religion is man's way to attempt to reach up and grasp God. But in Christ Jesus, the cross became God's way of reaching down to man. Religion forces us to work our way up the mountain, but Jesus came off the mountain and met us in our sinful state even before we could start climbing, even before we could do anything to start earning our salvation. He left his glory to come down and be a part of our broken world and did so in a way that made God completely accessible to anyone and everyone who calls on his name. So John Ortberg tells a story of one of his dear friends that carries a watch with her wherever she goes. And it's interesting. It seems a bit odd because it's not expensive looking. It stays in her pocket and it's broken. It doesn't even tell time. So I asked you, hey, how much would you pay for that watch? You'd probably say nothing. But if you asked her, hey, how much for that watch? She would say, it's not for sale. It's priceless. Because for her, this watch was one of her most prized possessions. Why? because it was the watch her father wore every day when she was a little girl. And her father had since passed away and it's the momentum she carries with her to remind her of him daily. See, the watch isn't worth anyone, anything to anyone else because no one can use it. The value, however, is not in what it does. The value comes in the fact that it belonged to her father. And in the same way, your true worth your true value, your deepest eternal value is not found in what you do, but it's found in the fact that you bear the image of your father who loves you so desperately and deeply that even if you've messed everything up in your life, he still wants to be with you. See, Jesus doesn't find your worth in what you do. No other God can say that. No other religion can say that. Only Jesus says this, and only Jesus demonstrates this. This is the way to become who you were truly called to be. Only Jesus can make this happen, which is why he is the way. And in the world we live in, it's such a huge ideal to be true to yourself. Let Jesus show you who you really are, right? 
And you can try to create your truth and be true to yourself, but if you want the truth, the plumb line of truth, Jesus explicitly said that he was the embodiment of what you are looking for. And because he is the way and the truth, he is the only one where we can find life. Because he is life and the way to eternal life. He embodies the life you're looking for in all the other places. We have a God who loved us so deeply that he didn't sit up in his throne and demand that we come to him. He took off his royal robes and he came down and met us in the flesh, in this world, in our depravity, in all of the junk that we bring with him. He says, I don't care. I still want you. I still love you. I still think you're worth it.